Well, the prophet that he's referring to there is the prophet Isaiah, and our passage on which the sermon is based is Isaiah 7, verses 11 through uh, 10 through 17, that is. I ended up, I preached a similar sermon this time last year at least one other church here in Phoenix. I'm just banking on the fact that most of you weren't there and didn't hear it, <laughs> or if you were, that you won't, you won't remember it. Or, or, you know, sometimes when you hear a sermon the second time, uh, it kind of hits you differently. So I, I'm as, expecting mostly that you either haven't heard it or you don't remember it. But Isaiah 7, um, well, let's start out with this scenario. You're shopping in Macy's and you hear the elevator music uh, from the speakers above. And let's say that the, the music is taken from the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita, some you know, one of the Hindu sac- sacred texts. And you know, that's the lyrics to the song that you hear while you're, you're doing your holiday shopping. On a scale of zero to ten, like how weird is that? That is, that's probably a nine, <laughs> maybe, maybe a ten. And similarly, you know, Christmas is is a strange kind of cultural event in America. Because even though we are decidedly not a Christian society, we have this semblance of Christianity swirling around in our store music as we shop and as we, you know, worship the God that uh, everybody agrees on, and that is the God of, you know, more and and consumerism and and so forth. But when the average American hears the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, on the speakers in Walmart— you know, some, there may be some passing familiarity with that, maybe, but for the most part, they don't know. I mean, Emmanuel, what does that mean? I promise that for most people, the average American, that meaning is as uh, opaque as the Upanishads are to you and to me. Like, we just, we forget how far removed, um, like those of us maybe who grew up in a more uh, Christianized America forget that that's just not our cultural moment, is it? And by the same token, we talk about prophecy, or the prophet, in this case, the prophet Isaiah. The people's point of reference, it's not like it's the Bible. <laughs> I mean, a prophecy, a point of reference would more likely be something, you know, out of the Harry Potter series with the professor of divination, Sybil uh, Trelawney, who in the movies is played by uh, oh, um, uh, Emma, um, no, 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 who, who, Emma Thompson, yes, 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 you know, played by Emma Thompson, right, with her funky hair and big glasses, but she goes into a trance-like state as she's gazing into a crystal ball. She's the one who delivers a prophecy that ends up completely shaping and transforming Harry's life. That's what people think of. They, they don't think of, well, they don't think of anything related to a historical context that we're going to look at here in Isaiah 7, because, you know, Isaiah wasn't looking into a crystal ball. There was a, a particular historical moment from which this promise of a virgin birth came, and we're going to begin by looking at that and then moving on to um, the significance of Emmanuel. So verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before, the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. The land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste." The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Okay, let's 
pray. Father, as we dive into this ancient piece of literature, help us to understand it better. Open the eyes of our hearts, not only uh, to to gain uh, historical knowledge, but especially to see your son in this passage. Would you you know, help us to see Jesus, the one who uh, we've already sung about is, is the one who satisfies us in the deepest way. Help us to see him on these pages of scripture uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. And God's people said, amen. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the Assyrian Empire, this war machine was rolling across the Middle East, sweeping across the land, chewing up and spitting out kingdom after kingdom. You had two countries in the north. The name of those two countries was Israel and Aram. And they were about to get hit by just this onslaught of the most powerful war machine of that day. So they go to a country in the south that is named Judah, and they say to the king, um, we want you to join with us in a military alliance so that we can, you know, parry off this, this, uh, this threat upon us all. And the king of Judah, his name is King Ahaz. He was a notoriously evil, bad king. He says to the king of Israel and Aram, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not very interested. I don't want to, I don't want any part in, in this, in this fight. And Aram and Israel then reply to him and say, well, that's, that's going to be your answer then uh, we think we can persuade you to, <laughs> to change it. We will lay siege to your city of Jerusalem. We'll starve out you and your people. And then once we have you know, assassinated you, we will put our own guy in charge. And your answer will be different. So that's the context of Isaiah 7. It takes place in this moment of uh, intense national fear where everybody in the city is wondering, like, what do we do? What do we, do? we, we have the most powerful empire in the world and that's coming about to crash in. And we have these two neighboring um, nations. They're threatening uh, to uh, attack us. Who do we trust? How do we align ourselves? The people are, are deeply frightened and they are looking to God for encouragement. And that's where Isaiah enters in. Isaiah comes to uh, Ahaz and says something rather remarkable. You don't hear very often in the Bible. He says, ask for a sign any sign, like it could be as high up above, like as high in the heavens, or, you know, as deep as the earth goes down into Death Valley, that, that kind of two um, extremes is just saying, ask for anything. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know, God rarely will, rarely will ask, tell a person to ask him for a sign. I mean, the point of it is that God, it's a great mercy. God is wanting to strengthen the king's faith and strengthen the people's faith, to which this faithless king replies, no, 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 I couldn't ask God uh, for a sign. You know, that would, I would never do that. That would, you know, um, that would be putting God to the test, which is something I would never do. And it's a bunch of um, baloney, basically. King Ahaz just doesn't want, want to listen to Isaiah. So Isaiah says, well, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and this is the sign, and Alma will be with child. Alma, Hebrew for a young woman who is usually unmarried and a virgin, but not always so. And Alma, a young woman who is usually unmarried, might be a virgin, might not, will give birth to a son. Well, you say, which son? And when will this happen? Verses 15 and 16 tell us, this son will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. In other words, how long does it take for a child to come to a point where they have some moral compass, that they understand right from wrong? I mean, I don't know if we have any child psychologists here, but I mean, a few years, not very long. Um, verse 16, what's that? I guess 
some of us, sometimes it feels like 18, 19, 20, <laughs> 25, or no. Just a few years, verse 16, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. He says, curds and honey. I mean, are those peacetime foods or wartime foods? Dairy and nectar, that's not the kind of food that you eat when your city is um, under siege. So what Isaiah is saying is by the time this child is old enough to know right from wrong, um, in just a few years, he's going to be eating honeycomb and yogurt, (laughs) dairy and nectar, um, because the siege will be over and there will be peace. Now, as I said already, Alma can, can mean virgin, but when you look at the context, it doesn't necessarily uh, indicate that. It, it, it sure seems what, what is simply likely is that a young woman who might be a virgin, who might not, who's known to everyone in that day and time is going to have a child. And the likely candidates that have been proposed um, by Bible scholars in the past, it could be Isaiah's wife is going to have a child. It could be somebody in the royal household is going to have a child. But, but there's a child soon to be born, and then... Um, the siege will soon to be uh, to end. Oh, but what about the name that is given to this child? I mean, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, here it is on the screen. M Manu L. M simply means with. Manu means us, and L is is the word for God. With us, God. Well, doesn't that settle it then? That there's going to be a virgin and this, and this person named Emmanuel is going to be, you know, divine. Well, not exactly. You know, there are many people in the Old Testament who have L-E-L in their names. Daniel, Daniel, means God is my judge. Does that mean that the man who is named Daniel is, is God the judge in the flesh? No, right. The high priest is named Eli. L-I, which means my God. It doesn't mean, though, that the priest is actually my God. There are dozens of names like that in the, in the Bible. The name is supposed to tell you something about God, but it doesn't designate the person so named as divine. Are you following? So seen in this light, naming the child Emmanuel means that God is going to be with Ahaz and the people, and they have nothing to fear. The child that is going to be born is a sign that the attack from the neighbors, Israel and Aram, won't prevail. There will be peace. The people, God's people will be delivered. Like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> At least that, I think, is, um, is a really plausible interpretation. But if that's the case, then why is it that Matthew, years later, ends up citing Isaiah 7 in the birth narratives of Jesus, because we just read that. Um, how does it? How does Isaiah seven point to Jesus? And I think that's really the most the interesting question to a- ask and answer. Those of you who are um, especially into video games, you know what an Easter egg is, right? An Easter egg is a secret message or a hidden feature that is embedded in a vid- video game that is intended by the programmer to be discovered. So the very first video game, Easter Egg, dates back to 1980 and the Atari 2600 game console. It was a video game adventure, and John was telling me before the service that he played this um, as a kid, and it was a maddening enough game that he wanted to throw his controller across <laughs> across the room. Um, I've done that with a Nintendo controller before playing Mario Kart, so I can relate to that. But so, but it, what happens is you move this little dot, um, you know, through these different screens, and if you know 
the special way you'll come into the secret room embedded in the middle of the game where the programmer ended up for the very first time giving himself credit. In the early 80s, there were no programming credits before or after games. And, and the programmer, in this case, his name is uh, Warren Robinette, felt like, hey, that's not very fair. I mean, an author gets a title page. Why don't programmers get their own title page? So he did it. He put it in the middle of the game. You can find it created by Warren Robinette. When Matthew's writing his gospel, I mean, He's already spent time with Jesus, and and Jesus has already been crucified, and he's already been raised from the dead. Um, He had had either experienced the shepherds and the angels, and he certainly saw a lot of miracles. He saw Jesus had come back to life. And so as he goes to write down the story of Jesus, um, how does he explain it? How, How does he get his mind around what he experienced over these last three years? He turns to the Old Testament, wondering, is there anything in the Old Testament that can account for what I have just experienced? And I think he stumbles upon an Easter egg. Like, what if God hid Easter eggs in history and in the Bible, which could be later discovered? Um, this is really important, but the Old Testament, you probably know, was written originally in Hebrew, but that was not the Bible that they used most in that day. It was later translated by uh, purportedly 70 rabbis into a Greek version of the Old Testament, which they called the uh, Septuagint. And that was the Bible that all of, everybody was reading in that day. That was the, the most popular translation. Well, when they went to translate the word, the Hebrew word Alma, into Greek, they translated it with the word Parthenos. And Parthenos is a Greek word that always refers to a virgin. And so can you understand what's going on here? Matthew is reading from a Greek Bible. He's reading from a Greek Isaiah scroll. When he comes to these words, a Parthenos shall conceive and bear a son, and and we shall call his name Emmanuel. And at that moment, Matthew, uh, the gospel writer, is thunderstruck. He's thundered. It, it would be the equivalent of like, you're a, a researcher and you are looking at the screen watching the DNA genome sequencing when all of a sudden it pops up and you realize you have discovered the cure for cancer. Like that kind of thunderstruck. I can just imagine him. He finds this Easter egg for the first time and I mean, he's just trembling. <laughs> he's trembling and maybe he's just weeping and he bows himself to the ground, face to the ground in worship because because this is exactly what he had experienced for those three years with Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. He he has discovered something so wonderful, and it was there all along in the Bible. There all along. You know, Grover's from Sesame Street, those of you who, uh, like, who didn't watch Sesame Street, or Plaza Sesamo as a kid. Did they have Grover in Plaza Sesamo? Oh, that's terrible. Surely there was at least a character who would do this, but, you know, Grover, one of his ways to illustrate the words near and far is he'd run up close to the camera, and he'd, like, stick his face in the camera and say, near, and then he'd run back into the back of the stage, and he would say, far, and then he could do that a, a couple of times, and that is theologically, like, really good stuff, because that's how Easter eggs work. There is a near, and, and there is a far. Um, another way that it's described prophecy in the Bible is you're looking at a mountain range, and the, and the first um, the first hills start to blend in with the later hills, and the 
And, uh, you know, looking at the silhouette, you may not even be able to distinguish between um, how much distance there is between one ridge to the next ridge to the next ridge, near and far. It's how Easter eggs work. The near, the near was a time of national crisis when a faithless king had refused uh, to ask for a sign. Um, and the people felt like they were dwelling in the land in the shadow of death. A child was born to someone they knew to be an Alma, which predicted the end of the siege and peace in their day. The middle was a retranslation of the Bible from Alma to Parthenos by a bunch of rabbis who had no idea that there would be this kind of significance in their retranslation, which became the most used translation of the Bible from Alma to Parthenos. And the far, the far is the ultimate fulfillment that we are anticipating on December the 25th to celebrate that the Virgin Mary had a baby and lo and behold, he is God with us, the God with us. Okay, so why did I go to all that trouble to uh, explain to you um, the history and the story? Simply because God's ways are not always simple. And I don't know that that always comes out in our readings of the Bible. It's so easy to, to you know, read through Matthew and, and hear about a prophet. And, and you're just like, oh, yeah, I mean, Isaiah must have been talking about the virgin birth. It's just like, falls out of the sky when, no, no, actually, it's, it's rather complicated. I mean, yes, he was talking about Jesus, but it was a very strange connect the dots. Um, God's ways are not always simple, and that's refreshing to see because, like, life is, is not always very simple. Our own life is complicated, and God wrote the Bible within the strange complications of everyday life. You know, maybe in our zeal to get the Christian message out to others, uh, we may inadvertently oversimplify either the Bible or the complexities of Christianity. And I tell you that I find um, the, the word of God like, far more meaningful when I see the twists and turns of history. And it's not just like getting to the destination of, of the prophecy, but it's, it's more the, the journey, like how God navigates the whole journey of Scripture. I think it's beautiful, and I hope, uh, I hope you do too. Well, let's talk about the child. Um, up until that moment in Israel's history, every time God showed up on the scene, uh, it was in usually a terrifying um, form. Like the, whenever the presence of God comes near, he looks terrifying. Like he appears to Job. How? He appears to Job in, in a whirlwind, in a tornado. He appears to Abraham. How? Um, as a smoking furnace that's moving through the air. Like, I don't even quite know what that means, but that's how it's described. Um, there's this incredible blaze in the, in the dark. When he appears to Moses and to the children of Israel, how, how does he come? In a pillar of fire. Like every time God shows up, there was a sense that it was terrifying. And so why do you think, why, why do you think that he would show up in the form of a baby? You know, there's nothing like a baby. I mean, a baby is about as, as tender as they come. <laughs> a baby you can pick up in your arms. A, a baby you can stare into their eyes and, and talk to them. Um, you know, once you'll discover this, uh, if you haven't already, John and Maya, like once your kids get to three or four, uh, you can't guarantee you'll ever get to pick them up again or <laughs> for the most part. They don't like to be picked up when they're at that age. You, you just can't always pick them up when you want to and hug them because they have their own agenda. But a little baby doesn't, right? A little baby is just the most intimate and familiar form of human existence. You can hold them. You can kiss them. They're completely soft. They're completely vulnerable. Just think about the wildness 
of a God who created a universe that is 93 million light years across, choosing to enter into the womb of a 13 to 15-year-old girl, a virgin, and be born and be vulnerable. A God who creates 93 million light years and is willing to be vulnerable. Um, What does that say? (laughs) What does that represent? You know, when we start trying to wrap our minds around those kinds of wild dichotomies, then we're really beginning to think about Christmas. (laughs) We think about it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. When we think those deep kinds of thoughts, we're really beginning to think about Christmas. You know, in the first few centuries of the church and church history, there was a group of false teachers who maintained that no way, like there's no way that God could come in the flesh. And so what they maintained was that there, there must have been like some ancient hologram, something like a hologram, something like an illusion, some type of projection of God, because any God who is pure spirit, I mean, no God, no perfect, pure, eternal spirit, could soil himself on a regular basis in cloth diapers. No way. Um, No God would ever debase himself in that way. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that a God would debase himself in in dirty cloth diapers. Um, And I have some sympathy for them. Like, when you really think about it, 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 that's pretty crazy talk. I mean, I think another one that just boggles my mind, if you ever watch a a little baby laying there asleep, sometimes when you pick them up, their their arms will like shoot out and they'll they'll kind of shake and their arms go out. Why is that? It's, It's a fall reflex. It's because they don't have a developed central nervous system. So when you pick them up, they feel like they're in, you know, they're in free fall. Um, They feel like they're falling. Like God's willingness to enter into the human experience, to become vulnerable, to to cry inconsolably when he's hungry, to, to develop a central nervous system, to have an undeveloped central nervous system for a time. Just the crazy beauty of a God who is willing to develop and grow. That is the God who's with us. You know, the last time in past times, he showed up as a tornado. In past times, he was a pillar of fire. But in this time, he is in the form of a baby. That is the form of God with us. Um, more personally, what might that mean? Well, I mean, aren't there many times in life when we feel so overwhelmed and alone and we, we feel like we're on our own in our struggles and whatever is, you know, the, the trouble of the day, be it um, a child, be it a marriage, be it our parenting, be it job, school, mental health, il- illnesses, we feel like, like, we can just feel like we're on our own. No, God is with you. This, he is with us. Think of the names of the Bible. Yahweh, the, the one who is. El Shaddai, the Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High. Adonai, the Lord, the Master. El Olam, the everlasting God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Um, And many more. That is the God who is with us. Think of the attributes of God in the Bible. He is, you know, king and, and, or sorry, the images of God in the Bible. He is a king. He is a shepherd, a warrior, a rock, a refuge, a shield, a father, a maker, a judge, a lawgiver, a comforter, a savior, a lion, a lamb, and many more. That is the God who is with us. And as I said, think of the attributes of God in the Bible. He is living. He is powerful. He is shrewd. He is just. He is merciful. He is pure. 
He is honest and faithful and joyful and patient and rich and sovereign and kind and merciful and loving. And there is not a single moment of your life when he is inattentive or unattentive towards you or that his his heart is weary of you or he's fed up with you or he's sick of you and all your failures. There is not one moment when his care for you falters. Um, He hears your cry. He knows your need. He knows your sin. He's been down here before, and he's with you in all of it because he's one of us. Christianity, if you know, you're here and you're kind of thinking about it or exploring it, Christianity could be summed up in, in this simple way. God crossed the line. Like, he came to us. He, he didn't just come to mankind. You know, he became a man. And if, if you're new to our faith, the one way that Christianity is different than all the other religions of the world, you need to know that our faith is not about us like climbing up the stairway to heaven to God. Our faith is about God you know, climbing the stairway down to us. And it can't be stressed enough that when God came to earth, he did so in a way that identified with the poor and the marginalized. He was one of those people with rotting teeth people who desperately need dental work and can't afford it, people who lack basic nutrition. Jesus didn't have good nutrition. People who experience homelessness, Jesus was homeless. Women who had to sell their bodies in order to make a living, that was most of the ancient world. People who are mentally ill and can't string together five words in a sentence. He came to the lowest places and the lowest people. He came to the places that no one else was willing to go. That, that is Christianity. He, he came down to be with us like that. And so to finish up, you know, I, maybe I already told you this before, but I do have my moments of skepticism, my moments of doubt where I, I mean, I wonder, like, is, is this all make-believe? <laughs> um, is it really real? Um, sometimes I find faith to be, like, genuinely difficult. Um, I look at the size of the universe, and I would say, uh, something like, well, why would God give a rip about me, <laughs> given the size of the... Or, or I listen to many other people who have varying truth claims, and this idea that there is a truth claim that is, you know, elevated by the rest. I mean, that just leaves my mind some days in um, real doubt. But I find what, what does give me pause and confidence is a belief that God really did orchestrate history in such a way that like the Easter money, he's dropping an egg here and an egg there and an egg there. And then maybe if we're being honest, we know that our, our cultural moment is a moment of deep skepticism. And maybe, you know, my skepticism towards God is actually the thing I should be more skeptical of than, than, than God himself, right? Like it should be the other way around. Like what if, what if all my dark thoughts and suspicions about God are actually unfair to him? That are not actually reading the evidence in, in the most fair possible light. I love how um, many of the stories of Jesus and of the Bible are recorded in this book. I don't know how many of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Yeah, it's, I think it's pretty fantastic. But when she comes to Isaiah, the Isaiah story, she writes it this way, and this is how you would tell it to a child. She says, <clears throat> You've been stumbling around like people in a dark room, but into the darkness a bright light will shine. It will chase away all the shadows like sunshine. A little baby will be born, a royal son, 
His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He is one of King David's children's children's children. He is the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue us, but he won't be the one that anybody expects. He, he will be a king, but he won't live in a palace, and he won't have lots of money. He will be poor, and he will be a servant, not a, a warrior with swords. But this king who comes will heal the world, and he will be a hero, for he will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't do it with big armies, and he won't a fight with bayonets. Instead, he will make the blind see, and he will make the lame leap like a deer, and he will make everything the way it was always meant to be. This is the God who is with us, and with him, we can face our future on earth.